Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. With me today are two first-time guests and fellow veterans of the Paradox Masterclass. First, we welcome uh, Awesome Out of Tens uh, Managing Editor, Fraser Brown. Fraser, welcome to the show. Thank you. And we also welcome PC Gamers Contributing Editor, TJ Hafer. TJ, welcome to the show. How's it going? Not as well as before I started a war with Troy's Russia. Uh, That's to be true. quite honest. Yeah. Uh, which I guess obliquely brings us to today's topic, uh, a game that we've been playing for about the last week uh, and played a bit of at Paradox Con as well, uh, March of the Eagles. Uh, March of the Eagles is a, you know, it's, I think right here, this is, this is I think, where the discussion kind of starts because I find it a little hard to, quali- uh, to classify. Uh, it is a war game in many ways, but it's a war game built into a grand strategy engine and with a lot of grand strategy uh, trappings. Uh, but it's still, unlike every other Paradox game, this is very focused on one war, a very small window of time, and you don't have uh, a lot of choices except for who you're going to beat the living hell out of. Right, yeah, there's set victory conditions for every nation, and you either are going to achieve it or you're not. There's no really setting your own goals and things like that, uh, like in Europa or Crusader Kings. And I, I'd, I'd, call it a, I'd call it a war game. I'd say that's a fairly accurate description. Potentially um, a cooperative war game. I mean, yeah. with the coalitions, you can certainly team up against others and get a minor victory. In, right, right. It has, Britain wins. it has kind of a stripped-down version of the political system from, from other Paradox games in it, so it's not, it's not only war, but it's mostly war. <laughs> So if you're not if you're not entirely familiar with March of the Eagles, uh, I guess you know to set the stage a little bit. Uh, I think the game opens in 1805, uh, just before the uh, uh, while the Grand Armée is sort of camped at Boulogne, waiting to invade England, uh, which it never really did, and just before it had to go east and smash the hell out of the uh, Austrians and Russians, uh, and then a year later, of course, it would also shatter the Prussian army as well. And so it's really you know it's it's just on the cusp of uh, uh, you know the the peak of the Napoleonic Wars, and uh, the campaigns up through 1812, uh, leading to his ultimate downfall. And I guess the 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 place to start, and you refer to this a bit, TJ, is the the victory conditions. Uh, you know there there are eight uh, major powers in March of the Eagles, and well, each there's one... seven major powers and one quote unquote major power. <laughs> yes, the the Swedish nationalist. Uh, Paradox. Sweden has a way of faring well in every paradox game. Not when TJ's playing it. <laughs> well, I I don't think it's possible to win as Sweden. Quite honestly, I mean, I'm sure somebody can do it, but I've never been able to do it. Well, the the victory conditions are are really tricky because every every major power uh, is is sort of you know the 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 overarching structure of the game is everyone is seeking uh, dominance both on land and sea. Mm-hmm. And once somebody becomes the dominant land and sea power, uh, the the game is over, and that and that player has won. Uh, and you become the dominant power in those in those aspects by capturing uh, different provinces uh, that are strategically uh, required in order to raise your dominance. Uh, in one of those two categories and they're different for every nation right so it's not right. like russia has to conquer ireland before they're master of the ocean uh russia can go basically take a bunch of north sea ports and uh you know call it a day but the trick is 
that you can't just capture all your requirements. You also have to make sure the previously dominant power uh, has their hold broken on it. And I think that sort of triggers, you know, as we've been playing our multiplayer game, I find it's made for some really interesting, uh, like, diplomatic calculations. Right. Well, I mean, for a while there, uh, Greg Tito from The Escapist, he's playing the Ottomans. He would have won the game if... if uh... I think France was still land dominant. Is that what what was keeping him from winning? Yeah. It oh was God, France's really? Land dominance. It, that yeah. was all that was stopping him. In fact, that was why Joe wanted me to turn on France as Spain, France's only <laughs> actual ally at right. that time or player ally. Yeah. Uh, if I turned on France and lowered the land dominance, then Greg would have won the game. So I just declared war on Greg instead. <laughs> So yeah, you can you can keep taking dominance objectives all day, but if there's already somebody with dominance and you don't break their dominance, you you don't win no matter how many of your objectives you get. So what I what I find the, the diplomatic calculations become really interesting because basically, you know, everyone's going to everyone is going to sort of ally against the person who's in danger of snowballing and achieving the uh do, the, the the total dominance. Right. And so all these relationships are formed with the knowledge that, you know, at some point we've all like you're you're probably going to have to turn on your ally because you don't really you know, as much as you might be working as a common enemy, you're also hoping to come out of the war, you know, as you know, much stronger in terms of dominance objectives. And so it just it's it's the sort of countdown as to when the alliance is going to fall apart and dissolve into self interest. And right. um I find it just makes it in multiplayer in particular, uh, I, I find it uh, it's a really sort of exhilarating, paranoid game. It is, and I think I think it shines in the multiplayer. That's kind of where it, it finds its place, because other, other Paradox games, like Paradox Grand Strategy games, when I try to play them in multiplayer, it's just too much to manage in real time. Like, when I play single player in, in Europa or Crusader Kings, I'm pausing all the time. Whereas I feel like March of the Eagles has... It gives you just enough to do that you can play it in multiplayer without pausing pretty smoothly and without losing track of, you know, seven of the ten things you're supposed to be keeping track of. It allows you just to focus on the war from a gameplay standpoint, and all the intrigue and diplomacy is just done by players talking with each other. So it makes things a lot easier. You don't have to keep on top of quite as many things as you would in, say, Europa Universalis or CK2. Now, have you guys played much single player? Not as much. I did in the beta. Yeah, more so in the beta. Uh, The multiplayer has been kind of drawing me away from it, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, and I think with good reason. Now, I I sort of hoped that... uh, the beta AI was just well beta AI, and you might see a bit of an improvement in the uh, in the release version of the game. And I don't mean to say here that March of the Eagles uh, AI completely fails at its task, but you know when you think about it, the victory conditions we outlined just a few minutes ago, you know they're simple and straightforward. They're the sort of thing that's easy to comprehend if you're a person. And you're, mm-hmm. it's easy to make those calculations, uh, but I'm not sure the AI is up to making the same the same uh, judgments, because what I'm finding is it's really diplomatically passive, and the dip- diplomatic game is actually kind of boring and unsatisfying. Well, the other thing is uh, this map 
you know, compared to the other Clausewitz maps, has a lot of provinces on it. It probably has four to five times as many, maybe not quite that many, as like the Europa map or the Crusader Kings map. I feel like the AI does not do a great job of like splitting their armies and maneuvering them. They pretty much just send everything down one corridor uh, and, and try to capture that way. Yeah, it's big stacks rather than lots of little units going everywhere and trying to... Because, I mean, a, a small unit can snatch up a, a province pretty quickly. I mean, just walking through it, often the province is captured. Uh, right, if, there, if the, there's no fortifications. No, yeah, exactly. If it's just a... You know, usually the dominance provinces are, but right. it's it's very easy for them just to march through, but they, they don't do that. As TJ said, they'll just go do, down one path. It's also interesting, though, if you just march through it, and there's no fortification. You don't control the province once your troops leave. Uh, I think maybe you can you can detach a supply guard to hold the province. Yeah. Um, so you'd be you'd be dropping units uh, on it, but the, I've right. not really seen the AI do that. Yeah. Um. So so yeah. I mean, I, I've seen the AI do some. You know, like a, like a lot of AIs, you you see flashes of oh, that's impressive. You know, mm. clever girl. Uh, but then they're also, uh, you know, really depressing, uh, boneheaded moves. So, like, for instance, I'm playing a game as, uh, Britain, and God, what a, what a joyless and infuriating game Britain, uh, ends up playing, like, every single time. Yeah. Um, but I'm playing a game as Britain, and I decided to do the, uh, you know, I'll try to snipe, I'll try to pick at the, uh, periphery of Napoleon's empire, and so I took all the Spanish uh, Mediterranean colonies, uh, took out the uh, Northern African allies, uh, took the Spanish, uh, you know, island ports in, in the Med, and then I started on Italy, and uh, I protected Sicily from a French invasion, uh, basically by parking a fleet uh, in the uh, Straits. Uh, what is it? The Straits of Messina, uh, right. connecting the boot to uh, the boot to. Sicily, and if you've got a fleet there, they can't cross. And so, I kid you not, though, I have now spent two years of this war, I think, locking down a French army of 130,000 soldiers with 12,000 <laughs> Englishmen in Sicily. They just, they're just parked there. Troy did the same thing to me in the Baltic. My entire army is currently pinned in on this island with Russian ships on either side, and I haven't been able to do anything for like 20 minutes. But but the thing is, well, yeah. But you're you're trapped by sea. You can't get out. the The French AI is like incapable of making these hundred thirty thousand soldiers go do something else, even though they're probably needed somewhere else. because oh, uh, it's thing. just like it's sitting there, sort of staring at Sicily, uh, but it can't cross, and so it's just sitting there waiting for my ships to leave, which they never will. Uh, so it's it's just like, on the one hand, it's like really boneheaded that way. It's really pigheaded. Like I'm going, you know, damn it, I'm going to just march this huge stack and and take Sicily. It doesn't matter if it's physically impossible uh, unless, you know, the, the army's like blessed by God and some miracle happens. Uh, but then at the same time when I started doing like little like nuisance landings uh, along uh, the, you know, the Italian peninsula and into the Alps um, it's but responded very quickly breaking off detachments that were about the appropriate size and starting to, you know, hem me in and, uh, you know, cut me off from my original landing ports and so there are times. There are times I think the the AI is up to the military task. Uh, there are also times I think it fails. I'm pretty used to that. For me, the big problem though is just it has no. The victory conditions are very clear in this game. I don't think the AI is playing the strategic game effectively at all. Yeah, I I, I kind of get what you're saying with that. I've haven't like 
played as much of the single player as I have of, of the multiplayer, honestly, but it seemed like it was not difficult, at least as, you know, like as France or Russia, to completely outmaneuver the AI in terms of, you know, thinking ahead and who you're going to attack when and stuff like that. Right. I've I've been playing a game as France. Um, I, I've, I play games both as France and uh, England uh, against the AI. And in neither case have I seen an effective uh, counterbalancing coalition form against the French. Uh, it just it just doesn't happen. Um, and, and so it's it's a little it's 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 a little weird because so much of this game depends on these really ruthless uh, you know political calculations mm-hmm. and the AI just can't quite you know and I understand why this is it requires sort of a facility with sort of abstraction that AI generally isn't great at like you need, you need that ability to sort of see far enough ahead and realize that the balance of power is shifting incrementally but significantly and so you need to form a coalition to counterweight it uh, the AI just doesn't see that. It's like it, it's sort of living for the moment, right? It's like if it has a like a chance to plant the dagger in your back, it'll do that because it can see the momentary advantage. Yeah, they also they don't pool their resources well, and I'd say this no. is this is true of Crusader Kings too, um, where you know if if you're fighting an enemy that has a hundred thousand guys and you have fifty thousand guys and your ally has fifty thousand guys, and you know the AI aren't really good at at realizing, okay, we need to send everybody to one place or they're just going to walk right over us. You kind of have to push them into it by getting a, like requesting an expeditionary force or something like that. And then just taking their men off them (laughs) and using them. Or Uh, following them around. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's a pretty cool feature you cite though. Uh, Fraser yeah. with the uh, getting expeditionary forces because some of your some of your little allies can put together a decent little army. I find the Dutch uh, punch oh, way yeah. above their weight. Yeah, I actually played a game as the Dutch, and France kept taking my troops because I had so many of them. I learned that you don't want to mess with the Moroccans. When I had them as a satellite nation uh, in our multiplayer game, they just marched all the way across North Africa. Um, and like basically they would just clean up after me. It was fantastic, and it was a very small force as well. Um, and then, of course, I had Portugal going off and trying to conquer Ireland, uh, which Paul Dean did not uh, like very much. God, the AI has this fixation on Ireland. I don't think the, the Irish are this obsessed well. with liberating Ireland. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, it's just every game... And uh, this, this again, speaks to sort of the weird quirks of the AI. I had to fend off an invasion of Tuscan troops into Ireland. <laughs> Tuscany loaded troops onto a boat, sailed it through the Mediterranean. While, by the way, while I was fighting in Italy, so like I was there, like in Tuscany, <laughs> they loaded troops onto a boat, sailed them past Gibraltar, and then worked their way up the coast, and then appeared in Ireland and started like conquering Ireland for Tuscany. You know why it is, though? I think it's because. There's, you're never really going to have a reason to have troops in Ireland unless oh, it's, someone it's... else is attacking it. So it's a great target. For, it is. It, even, though, even if they don't have any dominance objectives there, they'll send it there because you don't have any troops there. And well, I think it's very, very... It's, it's that. It's as simple as that. Yeah, um, and if you can And deprive... it's not really a good idea. 
It is and it isn't. It's weird, though. It, it, like, Ireland ends up fulfilling this role. And I guess this is something I kind of like about the game. The dominance objectives and the weird, like, peculiar vulnerabilities each power has uh, because of what it needs to hold mm-hmm. create these little, like, Achilles heel strategies uh, that are kind of... It is a little bit gamey. Uh, it's, it, you, it's to, it totally feels dumb when you see... When it's like... Like, do I really need to go deal with, like, 4,000 Frenchmen who are somehow conquering Ireland? Like, couldn't we just call out the village police and, exactly. like, round them up? Yeah. But instead, no, you got to go deploy and do it. But at the same time, it does sort of model this... Uh, the fact that, like, these, these great powers, as they expand, you know, they're always these, like, you know, you've always got you always got to watch your back. And it requires, actually, a significant amount of resources just to make sure that you're safe from those little exploitative uh, raid strategies. Like, if you're Britain and you're trying to guard Ireland, um, that actually requires quite a number of ships to screen Ireland off and pick up any raiders uh, coming. Mm -hmm. And, like, so you end up with having to put a tremendous amount of resources into, uh, you know, just these things that will probably do you no good except as watchdogs. So these little armies that they send to Ireland are what one thousand, two thousand men. It's yeah. never very, it's never very big. I've uh, had the French get real. I've had oh, the French, really. Yeah, I've had the French appear with uh, three stacks of about twelve thousand apiece. Uh, wow! And In they Ireland? actually, yeah, yeah, that it was not pleasant. Um, wow, that's quite frustrating. <laughs> yeah, and well, and the other thing is this: they caught my main transport fleet out on the high seas before oh, it was no. transiting to join with uh, some escorts. They caught it out, and transports just die like flies in this game. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. If, they're, if they're not escorted, they can't run. They're gone. Yeah, so 36,000 Frenchmen land in Ireland, and suddenly I'm England, and I'm like, okay, so where are my transports? Well, I've got a few in the Mediterranean, but they're needed desperately to ferry troops around. So I just had to watch France conquer Ireland uh, while I, like, crash-built... Uh, transports, and I couldn't just build a few transports because I needed enough to bring. Like it's thirty six thousand well led Frenchmen. Like if you make an amphibious landing against that, you're in deep trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, yeah, it became this really interesting. Like it was this lost year of campaigning uh, as I frantically tried to reassert control over uh, Ireland. It was pretty cool. Although I will say, uh, one of the mechanics I really like about March of the Eagles is the the idea points are uh, or ideas are kind of like your talent tree type thing and the fact that they made it so you get more of them for losing so it's actually a somewhat reasonable early games meta strategy to lose to the french a bunch so you can build up idea points and then have your manpower refill you know later on in, in the campaign uh I, I really like that actually i haven't seen anything like that in, in another war game well, it makes sense because the Grand Army is just so powerful at the beginning of the game. I oh, mean, yeah. Britain starts off, what, invading France, if I recall right? Like, they've mm. actually got a fleet with troops. They've got a on, fleet the ready to go. They don't have troops in the channel, but they've got they, like right. they've got the home army, I think, ready to go. Okay, which is hilarious because, of course, the Grand Army starts very, like in the north. So basically, if the moment they land, should a player decide to invade immediately, they'll be destroyed. Oh, uh, like Because there's no army even close to that size. Um, but it's a potentially a, a, an alright tactic if you want to uh, farm idea points. Yeah, and the English can do that because if your navy holds out, you don't really need troops to guard your borders. 
Um, yeah. But yeah, so the the idea points thing is is actually really fascinating, and I kind of adore it. Um, now, our our friend Joe Robinson, who's been playing in this game with us, uh, isn't as happy with the system, and I think his objections are worth sharing here because his problem is that to get a meaningful amount of idea points, uh, you need basically to get like you can't just be beaten; you need to get like wrecked. Mm -hmm. uh, in order to really rack up idea points. And the trouble is that like, that usually means losing huge fractions of your army or navy at, at one go. And the trouble is that with like manpower, like once your manpower level goes down, it can go down very quickly, uh, it actually takes a long time to rebuild that. And so oh, yeah. the act of getting those idea points might be great, but in the meantime, you might effectively be taken out of the game uh, while that happens. I'm not sure. Like, I, I, I'm curious. Like, do you guys do you guys feel that maybe it's a little too stingy with the idea points? Do you think that defeat is maybe a little too punishing uh, for for what it for what it gives you? I definitely feel like manpower recharges really, really slowly. I mean, it can take you if, if you lose like uh, two thirds of your army. Say it can take like a third of the entire campaign <laughs> to get to build that all back up. It, it feels like, um, so I don't know that they're too stingy with idea points, but I do feel like manpower. You, you're just, you sit around so long waiting for manpower to build back up, especially if you're playing as a country like Sweden that doesn't start with all that much of it. Yeah. I've got to agree that I don't think the idea points are necessarily the problem. I mean, playing as, as Spain, I had a few losses, not many, but I still had a, a, a decent amount of ideas that I'd unlocked and I'd started customizing my nation, I guess. Um, but just after losing a force, it just takes so long to, to get back up to fighting standard. It, it, even worse with fleets, because they just take so damn long oh, to yeah. build. Mm -hmm. There's, like, I, Spain has a lot of close naval dominance objectives and it's much easier for Spain to really become a, a naval dominant power than a land dominant power and yet there's it just takes so long to build a fleet that it almost seems pointless <laughs> and there's there's frigates which you can get out fairly quickly but yeah if your enemy but, is using ships of the line the frigates might as well not be there so and remember what fleet <laughs> starts parked right outside of Spain You've right got Nelson and it's all ships of the line it's the biggest both Nelson and Keith are down there in the Mediterranean, right? And they, they're each yeah. got like insane stats and large squadrons of ships. And along. the Ottomans, because I noticed that Greg had a massive fleet. Uh, it, w it was huge. I think there were a lot of frigates, though, in that. But it was still a, a powerful fleet. I lost quite a few transport ships. Uh, and I basically just gave up on moving anything across the Mediterranean for about six months. <laughs> So I, I actually like I like frigates. They play I like frigates as they're they're such great uh, blockade and recon ships. Yeah. Uh, that it's usually good to have a, a few light squadrons seated around, but you really need to have a few groups of like heavy, heavy uh, ships of the line. And they uh, take there. the better part of a year uh, yeah. to build. And they are actually like a non-trivial expense on your national economy. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> like it basically for twelve Sweden, ships is your for Sweden wage. three frigates is a non-trivial expense. Oh man, but, yeah. 
It's well, different in single player though when you're raising more money because there are those sorts of lulls, whereas in multiplayer everyone's at each other's throats all the time. Well, so it, that's that's a, a lot of money you're pouring into war. So you just don't have. I mean, I think the most I got up to as Spain and I was doing quite well was about like a thousand gold or something like that, um, which is enough for maybe like four or five um, ships of the line. The, the 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 economy tracker has some weird distortions like it will it will basically show you your your daily uh what your what your current revenue for this month is um which can make it look like your economy is completely tanking uh if you were doing a lot of uh replacements of troops or yeah. repairing ships or uh, have just launched a bunch of new constructions but your economy is actually quite sound. That can be a little. It can be a little deceptive. They changed uh, that for EU four. I know that like there was. I think during like, May, I think it was like last year. I don't know when, but it was like it is in March of the Eagles, and it was very deceptive. Uh, and I think they've changed it so that it reflects your kind of yearly income now or something like that. Yeah. I do feel um. But it, when it, going back to the issue of like manpower and expense and uh, the the pace of the game, this is what I'm having trouble assessing: is is manpower really that much of an issue, or are we just all playing the game a bit wrong? Because I, I like I find that there's this like sense of urgency in multiplayer. Yeah, like, these things seem really immediate; like they have to be dealt with. Like I frankly launched probably a really ill-advised war against uh, Troy. Uh, oh, yeah, Troy's here. Russia. <laughs> uh, because he was busy with uh, Greg Tito's uh, Ottomans, and Troy's actually come really close to achieving a lot of dominance objectives. So I was like, I need to get him the hell out of Prussia. I need to get him out of Northern Europe and get him off my doorstep. So I, so I invaded and, uh, you know, uh, took Germany from him uh, and then moved into Russia, which is always the first mistake. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, got past Poland and that's when it's like, oh fuck, that's, that's a lot of, that's a lot of Russians, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and cause they're just bottomless. Another 100,000 fighting me up in Sweden. Like it feels like they just have infinite manpower almost. Right. And, and so the, the, but the, the thing I was wondering is as my troops are, and we need to continue this game, but right now my troops are frantically trying to escape back across Europe and, uh, you know, hopefully supply lines can do what my army couldn't and uh, trip him up. But what I was thinking about as as I sort of retreated was, why did I feel like I had to launch that war right then and there? And I feel like there's been a number of cases in multiplayer where we've done something prematurely when really the pay, like the game goes up to what, 1815? 1820? 1820, I think. I think. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, there's a lot of cases where... You know, there, there's. I, I don't think anybody's used downtime strategically enough. I think multiplayer uh, people get impatient and antsy, and I think it probably behooves you a little more to think in the long term about you know, you know, it's 1806, and you need to be thinking about what you're going to be able to do in 1809. Yeah, I've started to be a bit more cautious. I mean, I think that I made some major mistakes early on, when Greg started playing as the Ottomans, and very quickly I declared war on him for one measly province that I didn't <laughs> really need, and then it cost me uh, all of Sicily, which was a huge, huge problem for me. Um, so ever since Prussia was effectively taken out of the picture, I've retreated back to Spain, 
uh, and I'm consolidating my forces. So I have been using the, I think, what was the, maybe the last half hour that we played, which would have been, what, like a few months, six months maybe? Yeah, I think probably three or six months, yeah. Yeah, I've been using that to try and sort my forces out and, and figure out where uh, where I'm going to go next. Because I can't help you in Russia. It's way too far away. No, but it's just <laughs> as a side note, though, you need to get troops up into uh, France. Because uh, my guy's going to be coming in hot with a bunch of Russians right on their heels. Uh, so okay. we can turn it around. But that's neither <laughs> here nor there. Uh, but that's what's so cool, right? Is like we, we're all living and dying by these... Uh, you know, these plans. And uh, I, I do feel this is, like, that is really where the game shines quite a bit. And it might actually be uh, kind of an ideal multiplayer game for Paradox because this doesn't require the same sort of commitment um, of time and particularly of, like, uh, just tasks. Like, there's simply not as many yeah. tasks in this game mm-hmm. as there are in EU or, God help you, uh, Crusader Kings 2. Right, right. It's it's really the feeling is very much like uh you know what if diplomacy or risk uh, the board game just sort of came alive and suddenly you were you know so you were just playing it in real time uh, that's that's kind of almost the vibe I get. The yeah. great thing is that it hasn't negatively affected how invested we've become in in our uh, match because uh, we've been taking things very seriously. <laughs> yeah, it's been um it's been heated. There's been a lot of uh, a lot of uh, typing and uh, secret plans being made, and uh, mainly Joe trying to make everyone betray each other because he's kind of out of the game at the moment. <laughs> well, and, and this is this is actually this is going to be my litmus test. Really, is if Prussia and Joe can somehow find a way back into the game, then I think some of those balance issues will be assuaged in my mind. Because what's happened to Prussia so far is um, they basically got caught out. It became a feeding frenzy on Prussia. Yeah. And once that happens, uh, your army's going to get chewed up and brought down to nil. And then people are going to take the territories you need to have hope at rebuilding. And that's what's happened. He has basically, uh, you know, Berlin and a fraction of Poland and some of northern Germany. But a lot of, uh, you know, his key locations now belong to me or Troy or um, uh, Roman Kaiser's uh, Austrian Empire. And so, like, he should be done. Like, stick a fork in him, he's done. And I'm really curious if, like, with savvy diplomacy and everything, he can somehow come back into the game. Because at this point, I am looking at it like, oh, God, we made Prussia too weak. We need a balancer up there. Yeah. The thing is, he, he made some some errors, and I, I can understand why he you know where he went wrong because when I think about halfway through the war, when both France and Russia were basically marching through Prussia, destroying it, both yourself, Rob, and Troy both offered fairly decent terms. But because you don't have to accept these terms, Joe just said, "No, I'm going to keep fighting." And he backed himself into a corner, and obviously it got to the point where there was no way he was going to win the war. That's that's a really excellent point, and I've seen the AI do similar things too, really pig-headed, like digging in your heels, not declaring peace. And that's something else that uh, I think is sort of interesting about this game, and really if you look at how it's structured, um, this game is about accepting defeat. The whole ideas system is there to point the way to being like, hey, you're going to get crushed, probably more than once. And your goal should be to send an army out, let it get killed, 
and then get the hell out of the war with as little like loss of territory and uh, strength as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, sort of cool your heels and come back stronger next year. Yeah, I mean, Joe had Russia, France, and even I'd sent what, up a stack of 40,000 Spaniards up to deal with uh, his provinces in Holland. Yeah. Uh, and there was just, there was no way he was going to come out of it intact. So I, he should have just, he should have backed out like months and months before he actually did. And then he would have been in a much stronger position to make an alliance and maybe even offer uh, an ally something. But there's there's not a huge reason for an ally to team up with with Prussia at the moment. They're quite weak. No. Um, and it's sort of, it, you know, it begs the question, though, it's possible a few of us were misplaying the game, too, because we should have perhaps, like, I was still focused on winning this war against Joe, and I'm, I probably should have been starting to worry about how much Russia was sort of biting off uh, in the east or how much Rowan was sort of consuming, uh, you know, British, uh, not British, but uh, German satellites. So I I do find that that's, that's the, that's another issue I kind of want to touch on is uh, satellites. Yeah. Because there's, there's a ton of minor, there's, there's a ton of minor powers in this game, but it's not like EU where you've got like a hundred different German principalities and duchies and uh, electorates and all that crap. Uh, it's really been consolidated down quite a bit now. And so you've got a bunch of um, small powers that are still significant. And I think in a multiplayer game, few people are, like, I don't think you're going to have a lot of... I, I think eight is probably the maximum you can really do for this as a multiplayer game uh, and still have everyone having fun. But for the uh, for the smaller powers, a lot of them end up... They can be sort of bullied or seduced into being satellites... Uh, as was the case with like the Dutch and the, uh, them then supplying, you know, as a satellite now, I can request they provide me with one of their armies. And that's something else that's gone a little bit by the wayside in multiplayer and a little bit in single player as well, just because they don't find the di- diplomatic system terribly engaging. But if you use it correctly, what you should be doing uh, is constructing not just, you know, it's not just you. Uh, as a great power, but it's you and a swarm of your little friends uh, that you sort of set the agenda and then your coalition sort of jumps on them. And that's not happening in our multiplayer game, and truthfully I I, I get a little too impatient for uh, letting that work in single player as well, and I think it runs into kind of a classic problem with paradox diplomacy, uh, but it's exacerbated here because everything's so straightforward and your options are so limited, which is basically... I don't find it's not terribly fun to repeatedly open up a window and just be like, uh, you know, press the you know hugs button, yeah, or press the you know middle finger button uh, to piss someone off or well, sabotage the relationship. That's something you have to do, especially in single player. There's the improve relations mechanic, and if you don't stay on top of that, you're gonna end up in bad shape. Which is it's basically just sending a diplomat to improve your relations with a given nation. 
But in our multiplayer match, I've been taking, you know, a lot of advantage of these uh, minor powers. I mean, the first thing I did with Spain was conquer Portugal and make them a satellite, and then Morocco, mm -hmm. and then Algeria, and then my goal was to do the same with Sicily. I think huh. I've only actually annexed one minor power. All the others I've used, made satellites, and they've yeah. constantly got ships going through uh, the Mediterranean. They've been basically, a lot of the time, they're just cannon fodder, but they've given me breathing room and they've been hassling a lot of enemies uh, so I've found them to be really beneficial but not uh, in terms of diplomacy I've not been interacting with them and trying to improve relationships I conquered them and then made them satellites and now yeah. all I do is request troops or ships from them well that's that's what I did in the master class back in January when I was playing Austria I had a whole bunch of satellites and they were doing half of my fighting for me so yeah, Austria is in a really good position to do that right which is why I'm really surprised. I mean, because what is Bavaria still independent? Yes, yeah. Bavaria is amazing. I I don't understand how that's Somehow. possible. <laughs> like nobody's bothered. It's insane. I I think it was hard for Rowan fought a war with Pru uh, Austria fought a war with Prussia early on yeah. to get Saxony uh, on side as a as an Austrian satellite, and I don't think Bavaria ever got gobbled up. Uh, I probably should have tried to splinter them off and bring them on side, but I just got a little too uh, harried uh, in my war in Austria. Uh, the Alps are not a great place for an army. It's an but... option for Joe, because he <laughs> oh. could. I mean, he he might not have you know many provinces or troops, but I think he could he could tackle Bavaria and either yeah. annex it or make it a satellite. And that's that's you know they're they're only a minor power. But that's still quite a few provinces. Yeah, I'm not still... sure. I'm not sure he has the juice for it, though. Um, yeah, like he can't conquer it. Uh, we won't let him. Yeah, and that's, that's true. So his option is really to uh, send diplomats out again, and that's and that's the problem. Is I just find it a little bit, you know, being told you have to spam something uh, just to repeatedly, eventually, like raise that number enough to get what you want uh, is, is a little tricky. And I think Crusader Kings sort of solved this problem by there were so many players in play and so many different ways to interact with them. Uh, and they all had so much personality that it never felt like you were just like, you know, hitting the relationship improvement button on someone. Uh, it felt like there was real stuff going on. An element of Crusader Kings that could translate well to this is instead of sending diplomats, just have five diplomats that you put in... A, a capital somewhere on the board, and they will keep improving relations with that nation until you move them. That is, yes, that is something that uh, really should be taken to heart is, yes, just like have diplomats, like as in Crusader Kings, just like have a mission that you commit to and just runs open-endedly, and you don't have to keep like, uh, you know, f you know, feeding the meter, as it were. I think the problem is it's a, it's a war game, and so diplomacy has sort of fallen by the wayside with CK2. It's, you can play, you know, centuries and centuries of CK2 without any war. Right. Um, you know, you might, you might have a few, you know, rebel infestations or whatnot, or maybe some civil discord, but you can pretty happily play without war. But March of the Eagles is a gigantic war. So I, I think that that's why, for instance, it's much easier to make a satellite by conquering than it is to be nice to them. Um, but that, I mean, and I think that it made, especially in the multiplayer, it made me just ignore diplomacy entirely. It's obviously a lot more necessary in, in single player. 
but we created our own diplomacy by speaking right. with each other and ignoring the uh, AI. Or at least yeah. I did. <laughs> to our peril, but yes. Yeah. Now, but to that point about it being a war game, and I, and I think now this brings me to one of my real issues with uh, March of the Eagles, which is that it's a war game built on a grand strategy engine that's never handled war in a particularly interesting way. And they've done a lot to try to make it a little more engaging. Uh, you know, there's a ton of color uh, added to the system. Uh, there's a lot of, like, battle descriptions and reports mm -hmm. of what happened in the battle. Uh, it's all a bit like military Mad Libs, uh, really. Uh, but there's also the issue of there's all these things that's trying to get you to do that will seemingly matter uh, when armies do battle. Uh, you appoint commanders, um, sub-commanders uh, for different flanks of an army. Uh, you don't want one stack to be too overwhelmingly large. You kind of want to spread out. And, there, and then, of course, you can build all these different units, you know, Hussars, Dragoons, Highlanders, uh, you know, King's German Legion, all these different special units, whatever. But the problem is, I think if you strip all that away, it's still it's still a paradox game, and the biggest stack usually wins, uh, all things being equal. Oh, I uh, don't know. I think tactics come into it. I think the uh, the leaders you employ for the flanks. I mean, you can see them happening while you're fighting. You can you know and uh, morale of as always. Uh, is important. So I think there are many situations where the seemingly superior force can be utterly annihilated. Um, and I and I think I I understand what you're saying though, and I do think that it it could have been further developed to make it really seem like a war game rather than a stripped down grand strategy title. They've um, they've also made they've made attrition more interesting in that. It's not as punishing as it is in like Crusader Kings 2 where you might lose like 10,000 guys in a month if you have too big of an army and too low supply of a province. But the fact that you actually have to maintain supply lines from your own territory, which actually let me beat one of Troy's Russian armies that was very numerically superior by marching like 4,000 guys down and breaking his supply line. So he tried to assault my force and his army was out of supply, and they just demolished it. That was Rob's problem in, uh, when he was playing his Great Britain against, and he was in Spain during the uh, the masterclass in Iceland. Let's not talk was, about that. <laughs> that was very embarrassing for you. Well, no, it was it, it was it was the right decision. If I could have, like, I missed bringing you to battle at one point by like a day. Yeah, uh, and if I could have done that. I could have shattered your peninsular army, and then whatever troops you brought on, we still would have been fighting a roughly equal fight. But all I uh, had to do was keep moving around the map and have you chasing, yeah, and, and uh, then like... attack. And because of course that whole time I had almost every single province generating troops because I had a huge yeah. amount of manpower. But yeah, so I mean, I I, I do agree. Like attrition plays a, a really good role here in sort of planning your campaign and laying the groundwork for it by like building depots and such. That's all well and good. I don't feel I have a real hard time detecting the difference. The flank stuff matters. Now I agree with you about commanders uh, because basically you can view the commanders you appoint as like uh, global bonuses uh, to your army stack um, or to to the flank or the the entire army stack. And so good commanders will tilt the battle uh, in their favor, uh, you know, significantly, and that will matter. Um, so will things like terrain that'll shift the battle a little farther in in you know one way or another. But I I still think like these are all 
they're all a little bit marginal. Like, it's not going to... I haven't seen this game throw up a ton of Austerlitz type battles, you know, where you know the the uh, the armies outnumbered, outgunned, but just through uh, really sub- like significantly outnumbered, outgunned, and through really significantly better leadership, uh, doesn't just like get a draw, but actually shatters its adversary completely. I think um, I think you might not see that as often, especially in multiplayer, because we all put our best commanders on the front line, so there never really is a case of far superior leadership on one side. That's true, and that's actually something maybe to consider. So the the origins of this game, uh, you know, are, I believe it was, um, I, I believe it was sort of the brainchild of uh, Philippe Thibault uh, from Ajod, and he, he's always all his games sort of follow the similar pattern. They're really about chain of command and how you structure armies. Um, he did uh, Blue and the Gray, I think, uh, American Civil War game. Uh, he did. Uh, God, I think it's called Rise of Prussia, a pretty good uh, Mm -hmm. Seven Years' War game. And they're all sort of obsessed about uh, chain of command, and one of the things you see in these games a lot is the sense that your best commanders are not necessarily in a position to run the army yet. Uh, You know, if you're, like in in Rise of Prussia, for instance, if you take over as Austria and uh, you're going to be fighting the Prussians, you can see down there in your chain of command and your seniority, uh, you can see you've got great commanders who are just waiting to, uh, who will eventually lead the army really well. But before you can get to them, seniority demands that you put uh, you know, your oldest and most senior commanders in charge of an army, even though they suck. Uh, which is actually really cool, right? Because like, how often is that the case in history, where like the Austrians might have all these advantages, but unfortunately the empire is this like nepotic, uh, corrupt institution mm-hmm. that it just you know let's find some crappy Habsburg you know, uncle, and have him get 100,000 men destroyed. Great. Right. And that all works. And you can almost see vestiges of that kind of philosophy here, but there's no incentive to ever put a crappy commander in a position of power. And so everyone has enough decent commanders that I do think, like, the French have a, a much deeper bench. The French have a ton of oh, yeah. really great commanders. But when it really counts, like, you still probably have enough okay commanders to uh, to, to put together a decent army. It does depend on the nation you're playing. And I mean, because obviously you've got naval commanders as well. Mm -hmm. I think Spain starts off with like two. (laughs) There's there's not that many. Um, So there are instances where you just just have to deal with it and hope that they win battles or at least survive, you know, survive enough battles and make enough close calls so that they can level up and get more traits and improve. Because obviously commanders do actually improve over time. But I just think... Another problem with Sweden is they start with enough commanders for about three stacks of troops. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, okay, how am I going to divide this up? Right, and you don't seem to get new commanders, nor no. do you lose them, which is kind no, of weird. They, because when, if... The idea is when you use your, lose your units, the commander just legs it back to the capital. <laughs> right, which is, which is okay up to a point, but I do think at some point, like, attrition of leadership has to matter. You know, like, if... You know what I mean? Like, like if if you're getting armies shot out from under you right and left, like once in a while, you should see a general by the farm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you just oh, yeah. don't. That would be great, but then again, you've got to think about like who is March of the Eagles for. And I would say that going by you know what Paradox has said in the game that we've played, it's for people who aren't really that 
experienced with grand strategy titles. That's very I think true. Adding these very difficult, complex things into this title, while it would make us enjoy it more, it might not make the demographic it's aimed for enjoy it more. That's a that is an excellent point, and it's true they have positioned it as kind of a uh, way to sort of uh, it's sort of the waiting pool of paradox strategy games. Uh, you know, just get your feet wet and uh, enjoy the feel a little bit before moving on to something. And they've gone much farther, I think, with this in terms of including tutorial options than they have in most of their other games. Uh, I don't know. Have you guys have you guys felt the tutorial? Like, there's a lot of, in addition to the usual tooltips, there's a lot of tutorial, uh, you know, hotspots on the interface. Do you find that useful? I didn't find it useful because I, I didn't really think I needed it, to be yeah, honest. But I, I know that, like, other people definitely will find it useful i mean i've i've uh, i've got a few people to actually get the game and they're not necessarily as confident with these sorts of titles um and having all this information provided for on the, on the interface so they don't have to go through a pdf file is really handy i agree i agree in in the sense that it they're probably helpful to people who aren't familiar with this type of game but at the same time i would not market this as the game to get people who are not into grand strategy into grand strategy just because it's missing so many of the things that are unique about grand yeah. strategy that I think drew me into that genre. Um, I, I don't think if I was not already aware of Europa and Crusader Kings, that March of the Eagles would have made me want to seek those out necessarily. It is like we said, closer to a war game than a grand strategy game at the end of the day. So yeah, um, I'd say I'd say they've done a pretty good job of making it easier to learn than your average paradox game. But I don't know that it's it's the gateway drug that uh, they might want it to be. I mean, let's face it: most people like that are going to be dipping their toes into grand strategy are probably going to go the the route of Civ or something like that, which is very very easy to get into, but completely different. I mean, it's worlds apart. But I think maybe if they were looking to get into, say, a Paradox grand strategy title, then March of the Eagles might be a good way to go. Of course, I would just tell them to get a CK2. Right, I'd say the same thing. <laughs> just, you just jump in and mess up a hell of a lot, but yeah, you'll, exactly. you'll learn the ropes. Uh, yeah, I think what this game might be best for, ultimately, for, for guys like us, is the Paradox game we play multiplayer. Oh, yeah. Uh, because it's so self-contained and... Uh, just so full of action but yeah no i i i do understand that point about the the need to keep it simple and that is that is well taken that that is important i just ended up feeling that you know for a war game you needed just a little bit maybe just a little bit more of a feeling that there are battles you know just a little more feeling of an actual war here as opposed to um sort of an abstract math problem of you know an you know army stack a uh you know leaves la harve at at 12 15 right. p.m and encounters army stack b <laughs> traveling west at 35 miles right. an hour yeah it's just like at 35 miles an hour <laughs> what are these like supermen yeah they, uh, yeah you're right but no 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 <laughs> but like it's just it like I I do feel on that I don't think this is just contained to March of the Eagles though I think you know it's it's been really interesting watching Paradox um deal with aspects of like in European Universalis Four what we played of it uh, trade 
was garbage in EU3 if you played it. Like it was yeah. it was a terrible, awful mini game. It was pain in the ass. And now they've done something really cool with it that makes makes both like navies more relevant and uh, economic management more relevant, and uh, trade becomes a really strategic consideration in a way it hasn't been before. It's a and fully fledged that... system in EU4, whereas in EU3 it was just something you had to do, and it didn't right. feel well thought out at all. And it certainly wasn't fun. No, definitely not. And so I, like, I'm glad to see that system given its due and them to discover something uh, sort of cool and satisfying to do with it. And I just feel like for March of the Eagles, um, you needed just a little bit more... And this is so hard because it's like I, I, I've got a problem here, but I have no solution that I can propose, right? <laughs> like, you know what? Like, they, they can't go ahead and do a, uh, you know, Total War uh, style uh, game where it's you fight the battle yourself, but I just feel that the um, the, the the combat mechanics in, in these in these games have always so, felt so detached, so out of control, yeah. and the variables so irrelevant. Like when I look at these, what units should you build? Uh, the, these these long lines of available units to build. Aside from just the flavor, you know, fun of building, uh, you know, the England's King's German Legion uh, troops. Like, is that extra tenth of a point of firepower really going to make a huge difference? Like, how do you, how do you even detect the difference that makes? It's, it's the princess and the pea. And I feel that Paradox Combat mechanics have always sort of stumbled over this. And in March of the Eagles, it's a little more noticeable just because so much of this game is about the action of armies. It would be nice if when armies clash and that little box comes up, you aren't just looking at that little box. You're actually doing something. Yeah, and it's it's tough because they try to present huge periods of time, and they don't want battles to last for like months. So if you're playing at like a regular game speed, a battle's only gonna last you know six to twelve seconds generally, and you can't really give a lot of input in that amount of time versus a total war game where it everything else stops and you go into the real time battle and you can make a lot of decisions. Um, so I don't, I don't know how I would solve that either, but it's definitely an, an issue. It would be interesting if there was more, I mean, instead of just having uh, the straightforward tactics that you, you get initially and then you can unlock through the national ideas, if there was almost like scripting that you could do, customized scripts that you could assign to units so that when they, they react differently to different situations. So even when they actually get to that place and they have the fight, it might be out of your control because it's only going to be, what, like 10 seconds long. But you've planned it out a lot more beforehand. That would that be kind of cool, almost like uh, how followers worked in uh, Dragon Age Origins where you could actually set up yeah. a mini script for them, like if this happens, then this. Exactly, exactly. And that would be a lot more fun because it would give you a lot more control. Uh, and it would feel like you're an actual kind of leader. And I, I think they gestured in the direction of this with um, being able to sort of customize your flanks for each army stack. And yeah. depending on how you equip them, they have different tactical options. But again, I think the issue is feedback. Like, you know... If I get a plus ten percent in the bombard phase and then twenty five percent during the assault phase, like uh, what the hell does any of this matter, really? Like it, it's really you have to be pausing it like every two seconds to even see that stuff happening. 
Right, and Which and is really impossible it's... in multiplayer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and really, how big a difference is going to matter when really the ba- really the the math is you have an army led by a five three four general versus an army of you know four two three, and you know the first one is one hundred twenty thousand men, the other is one hundred eighty thousand. That's the math that matters. That's that's what's going to mm-hmm. that's what's going to determine the outcome. And so all this other stuff is just uh you know it's it's the brass in the Titanic. Um, and it just it, it doesn't it, it it doesn't really work. I, I, I appreciate what it's doing, but it doesn't. I appreciate the the intent there. I just don't feel it it, it matters enough uh, to to really be a meaningful part of the game experience for me. Um, I I agree with the caveat of supply, like I mentioned earlier, because supply is pretty. I mean, if out of supply is like a minus thirty attack, thirty percent. So that can be a pretty huge determining factor. But yeah, other than that, I agree. Yeah, no, it definitely excels with things like supply. And this is definitely a game about planning your campaigns. Yeah. It's all about, it's the route that you take. I mean, you can't just, it would be so easy if you could just go straight to the dominance province that you need. You just ignore everything else, go straight there and take it. But you've actually got to conquer provinces as you go. So you have that supply line. Uh, it's you know it makes things a lot more involved. Yeah, I, I think where where all that stuff really pays out is just um, it ties the dip, the diplomatic action of the game so much closer to the combat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, just making sure that um, you know, like your your line of march is going to determine the the course of the campaign, and making sure you've got as many friends as possible along there, and making sure you don't have to fight too far, uh, you know, in enemy territory. Uh, that's that's all really crucial, and that's also, of course, why Russia becomes such a nightmare to beat. <laughs> exactly. But uh, I don't know. I just I I also just end up feeling like I don't know. I kind of wonder too. Uh, whether the game hasn't been just a little bit maybe overbalanced, uh, I, I feel. Well, maybe you don't feel this way up in Sweden, TJ. <laughs> uh, but uh, I don't know. I just feel like, you know, Russia, for instance, has this huge manpower advantage, but I'm really at a loss to see what disadvantage the disadvantages they're struggling against. Uh, you know what I mean? Like it, it feels like, like like Russia's you know usual bag is tons of troops, tons of resources, uh, awful management, uh, just you know terrible profligate uh, management. Well, aren't there dominance provinces? Basically, almost all of them are in uh, areas controlled by superpowers. That's true, but so but so are Francis. Yeah, but um, I, I know that like uh, with the Ottomans, they have a bunch in North Africa and uh, Sicily, and so does uh, Spain. Like, there, and then I've got a few in France, but most of mine are are, uh, are much easier to get. Where oh, I, really? So I think there are some uh, there are some disadvantages to playing Russia. Okay. Yeah. And also think how how difficult it is to get if if Russia's dealing with France as as hard as it is for you to get into Russia, it's pretty hard for them to get to you as well. Yeah, they you know so I I think they're I don't think it's overbalanced. I just look at what happened to Prussia. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Um, I also noticed though I I want to say in beta uh, in the earlier versions of the beta, I feel like when the game starts, Britain has just this massive fleet uh, that's basically like going to be the work of a lifetime to beat. Mm-hmm. And I feel like after a patch, it seemed like they cut the number of British warships uh, like in half. I, I don't think it was in half, but they definitely did reduce it considerably at some point. 
it still controls the seas in the beginning. Yeah. Both, I, I mean, they complete dominance over like the Channel and the Mediterranean. Um, so it's really, I, I think that they're still in a, a position yeah. of power there. Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah. So I mean, like, you know, closing thoughts, like. Where do you guys come down on this game? Because we've had a ton of fun playing it multiplayer. Yeah. But I also always feel a little bit like obligated to deduct fun had multiplayer with playing a bunch of friends because that, that, that by default is going to be pretty cool. Yeah. I, I think it should have been marketed as a multiplayer game. I really do. Because that's the one thing it's got is that when, when you're looking at the single player, it feels stripped down. But when you're looking at the multiplayer, it feels like they've taken things that are maybe unnecessary in multiplayer and then just left the stuff, the tools, basically, for people to have fun with. So I, I really think that it was... Um, I mean, uh, Chris King was telling me that when they did the multiplayer live stream a little while ago, uh, pre-orders got, like, went up hugely. There, and then there was something like a bunch of different threads on the forums for people who'd pre-ordered wanting to plan out multiplayer games with each other uh, because they simply didn't know that it was going to be that fun to do the multiplayer. So I think it was a missed opportunity at the beginning not to market it in that way. Yeah, I'd say it's it's Paradox's most fun multiplayer game or the one I've had the most fun with just for the reasons I stated earlier in that it doesn't feel like you're having to juggle eight balls at the same time and you can't take a break to you know set a couple down which is how it feels when i play europa or crusader kings multiplayer um you know you've got three and you have to keep those three in the air but you know it's just enough going on to be fun yeah i i struggle a little bit because i still know that like i don't know i suppose if you're if you're deep down the paradox rabbit hole Maybe you do have uh, friends to play these games with. Uh, you know, you meet them on the uh, legendary pa- paradox forums, or, uh, or or something like that. Uh, and and we're lucky because we all sort of work in the, you know work in this business, and so we meet each other. You know, we were we were all brought together at, at the uh, paradox con, and that became our game group uh, for this, which which is pretty cool. I I I sort of I'm sort of on uh, like I'm sort of on the fence between the extraordinary amount of fun I've had playing this game multiplayer. But then also the very real limitations uh, that I find myself uh, butting up against. A little bit in multiplayer, but much more so in single player. And that leads me into kind of a weird, uh, you know, a weird place of, you know, one of those one of those really qualified mixed recommendations that that I hate making because it feels like, uh, you know, almost un- unforgivable hedging. Uh, but <laughs> well, I'm you with know, you. there you have it. It's basically like two games. You've got one, and it's a it's an all right uh, war game, and then yeah. you've got another, and it's a superb multiplayer war game. Um, so really, if you want the latter, then then you know, then you can just ignore the single player. I mean, it's a budget title. It's what twenty quid. Um, yeah, I don't know what it would be in dollars. I think it might actually like twenty thirty bucks. I yeah, it's it's twenty dollars over here. So. Yeah, it's it's a it's a cheap game. Yeah. So and I I think that it's oh, well really priced. Good point. That's it's well really priced for something that's just multiplayer. If you want, you could just ignore the single player, or just you know, because you can complete a, the single player campaign in like an afternoon or two, or like a day, then you can just take it for a spin, get to grips with how it works in the single player, and then just jump on the multiplayer. Yeah. I I suspect where this game's really going to lose ground uh, is once EU4 comes out. Oh, definitely. 
because at that point, like from what we played of of U four multiplayer, like that pushes a lot of the same buttons. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot more stuff to do, and yet I, if we can keep the game pace slow, it doesn't feel like you're completely overwhelmed. Uh, and so I, I just think that sort of open endedness and uh, dynamism might pay off more. Although I guess the problem in EU four is you know if you start to have a rough game around the year you know fourteen fifty. Um, you know, and it's going to, you know, like 200 years of being a crap power is not going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to in Crusader Kings, if something really disastrous happens, you know, maybe you can become a vassal of somebody stronger and still have a fairly fun mid and late game just scheming within a given realm. Whereas in EU4, it's like, well, you messed up your nation, there's really not anything you can do about it now. Right, and in this, you just don't have those long-term consequences. It does right. seem, though, that in EU4 that they are trying to move more to the CK2 model where screwing up is just going to happen and you definitely can sort yourself out. That's I mean, the, the monarch abilities is, is an interesting one because, of course, you're gonna, your monarch's going to change, so you're going to go, you know, you could get a really terrible monarch who's going to completely mess your country up and you're just going to have to deal with that. But then in a few years, you might get like literally the perfect king and it will change your country's fortunes entirely so i think there's going to be a lot more of kind of uh uh uh, diamondism uh instead of the like kind of you're screwed for like 300 years or something eu's tendency to turn into the battle of the blobs yeah uh, Uh, sort of consumed europe yeah and i know that like from speaking to like Thomas, it, that's something that they were kind of focused on on trying to do. So it'd be interesting to see if they actually managed to do that because we didn't really get to see that aspect in the master class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I I think in in for this game though it does sort of have the um, it's it's nice that if, if you screw up and you you end up in a tough spot, um, you know if you can bring around bring it around, great. If you can't bring it around, well the game isn't going to go on that much longer. Yeah. That's that's a good point. Of course, that generally is the same case with me and Crusader Kings in Europa because I quit, but <laughs> <laughs> I'll rarely follow a disastrous uh, turn of events to the very end of the end oh, of the timeline. But you've got to, you've got to. That's when the game's at its at its best. Um, <laughs> what I'm wondering though is, is incredible. Is do you really think that Paradox cares if people are gonna quit March of the Eagles when EU four comes out? Because no. I kinda get this is this is, let's face it, a filler. Yeah, oh yeah. And it, I... as as a filler, it's actually quite tasty. Um but it's <laughs> it's just, you know, it, it's something to get us through the, the long wait to you know, yeah. uh, to autumn, uh, or the end of summer when when uh, EU four comes out. So yeah, I'd ultimately say if you plan to just play the single player, I'm not entirely sure I could I could recommend it completely. But if you have other people to play with it, play it with. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, if you can actually bloody get a match going, that's a hint we should give people how to oh, actually. Oh yeah, play a we had to player. use direct IP connect. The uh, the meta <laughs> server was not working for us, and trying to run LAN over Hamachi was not working for us. Oh my god! Admittedly. <laughs> 
admittedly, the direct uh, connection thing was one of the more painless I've had. In oh, yeah. It was, it was really easy. Like, just enter the IP address, and boom, we were all in the game in seconds. But it, it great. took about an hour for us to actually get to the point where we were doing that after faffing about. Well, um, that's why I'm really looking forward to, like, uh, EU4 and Hot Join and things like that, so you don't have to put up with crap like that. Yeah, and I, I think they told us they're going to try to route more multiplayer service stuff through Steam for EU4. God, I hope they do. Yeah. Because I swear to God, like, the, the notion that uh, these games are somehow tied to my Paradox forum membership yeah. is oh. insane. Oh, wait, you have to unlock, you have to click on, like, a padlock on the game oh after you've registered it, and it will only show up. You'll have to, it's like an eternal loop. Oh. Yeah. And if you God. change your password, you have to resend your password from the forums to the meta server, because it won't it, do that automatically. It did feel like we'd gone back in time over a decade. <laughs> oh, it was, it was like, it was like pre-Game Spy, even. It, it was just yeah. like, what in the hell am I doing here? And and yet, it's their best multiplayer title. <laughs> and yet. Uh, so yeah, just make sure you've got your IP address handy. And play and, with uh, people who you don't mind giving your IP address to. Yes. Yes, that's... <laughs> yes. So I guess it's just between friends. Who knows, uh, they might fix the meta server problems, but... Uh, it could be working by now. We were playing it like the night after it came out, so... Yeah. So it could have just been a uh, kind of minor issue. But yeah, so so no, I think that that is a good verdict though. Uh, Paradox's best multiplayer game. Um, not the competition's particularly stiff, and my <laughs> God, before EU4 comes out, uh, they need to get their Steam integration right, and uh, maybe find a better way of handling this all than um, having it all tied into the Paradox forum uh, membership, because uh, that just seems really backwards and cumbersome. And uh, V bulletin forums are not really the best way to have me unlocking access uh, to my games. Because uh, no. this 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 game, like, it'd be so nice if you could just be like put up a flare on uh, Steam or something and be like, "Hey, I'm playing March of the Eagles," and then have people just sort of join your game. And that just, would be awesome. Just roll. That'd be yeah. awesome. Uh, instead, we've sort of gone through this multi-stage. Uh, like it's like we're trying to la- get authorization to launch nuclear missiles. Uh, you know, <laughs> we got the Google group uh, constantly coordinating times. Uh, we've got the IP address that we've all gotten written down uh, to paste into the uh, to paste into the uh, Direct Connect. Um, and yeah, that that can be a lot better. But you know, that's you know, in fairness, that's that's not a huge obstacle, and it's. You know, it it fills the exact same role as a really good, uh, you know, multiplayer board game uh, yeah. does at a party. Definitely. Exactly. All right, so that does it for uh, this week's show. Uh, my thanks, as always, to our producer, Michael Hermes, for putting this episode together. And uh, my particular thanks to uh, both of you guys for joining me today and, uh, you know, and also being such good sports during a week of heavy <laughs> March of the Eagles combat. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for having us on. It was fun. Yeah, it was good fun, and we'll uh, be destroying you on Sunday. <laughs> hey, we're, we're allies, Fraser. Are you are you telegraphing something here? I'm Sweden. I'm not going to be destroying anyone. <laughs> All right, so uh, that's been Three Moves Ahead, and until next week, uh, good night. Hang on, I've just got to run out real quick and then we can bring the show to a close. Hang on. Okay.
Well, this is now the TJ and Fraser podcast. We're gonna just do our Hell own yeah. thing until uh, till Rob gets back. We're just gonna talk about whatever. You just start yeah. singing. <laughs> you said you've got a great voice. Oh, uh, once upon a time I was somebody else in another life. I sold myself way back then, back when I was new. Some Foo Fighters. Hold on. <laughs>